Hello and welcome to episode 27 of the Alone Podcast. With us this week, we have Kylan Maroney. Kylan was a participant on season seven of the Alone Show. So Kylan, thank you so much for taking time. We were just talking off record about how busy your life is and how crazy everything is. Um, so thank you for taking time to sit down and, and hopefully slow down a little bit so we can chat and get to know you a little bit. Thank you very much for having me. Yes, my pleasure. Well, I, again, I appreciate it, and I am excited for this conversation. I don't know why. For some reason, um, as I was getting getting ready, whatever that means, I don't really get ready for episodes anymore, but as I was getting ready for the episode, um, I was feeling a little bit nervous for some reason, so hopefully this goes well. I'm, I'm super excited to talk to you and hear your stories and your experiences. So to get started, I think it'll make sense. We'll just let you go ahead and introduce yourself and take that wherever you want to, and we'll just go from there. Sure. Yeah, so I'm uh, 36. I live um, close to Espanola, Canada, which is just outside of Sudbury and in Ontario. I just say, I, I feel like that's for most people, that's going to be pretty. <laughs> I feel like you just described a needle next to another yeah. needle in a haystack. So we yeah. like northern, eastern, let's go let's western. Go, yeah, let's go five hours north of Toronto. Okay. That's uh, in Ontario. Okay. And uh, near the Great Lakes. So Lake Huron uh, is a stone throw. And I live off grid and we uh, run a winter camping company called Lure of the North. And we specialize in traditional travel. So we... Um, make all of our own gear and take people out by snowshoe and traveling on the frozen lakes and rivers in Northern Ontario and Quebec. And um, we cut all our own firewood. We heat with a wood stove, cook on the fire, um, sleep on a bed of boughs and travel through the Boreal forest. And so that's kind of our specialty for our company. And then in the summertime, um, we homestead at our house, um, I have bees and try and go fishing and do wild foraging and, um, hunting. We are trappers. We have a crown land trapping line here, um, with over a thousand acres to manage. And, um, we eat about not about 90% of our food come, comes from beaver, um, and yeah, the rest is usually fish or occasional store-bought, uh, you know, groceries like everybody else. And yeah, in the summertime, Dave likes to cut, uh, he's an arborist, so he cuts uh, trees at remote properties that are kind of high-risk um, trees. And we also, so I help him with that. And we install off-grid solar systems for for people in the area as well. So kind of a smorgage board of, of stuff going on. That's awesome. It, you know, that just reminded me that I, uh, I total miss. So I owe you and Dave an apology. Um, when I was talking to Keith and Jen, cause I did an episode with both Keith and Jen together. Mm. They're like, Oh, if you, when you talk to Kylan, you have to get Dave on the line. And I'm mm. just remembering like, Oh yeah, I was supposed to ask about having Dave on the line. Cause apparently he's a pretty mm. rad guy. Um, Yes. <laughs> and if I understand correctly, he, if I'm, and I, <laughs> this might disappear if I get this totally wrong. If I understand correctly, he was uh, in boot camp for season seven. Was he not? Was that a thing? Yep. 
Yep, for sure. So yeah, uh, Keith and Jen were, and as well as yeah, Dave and I. So it was the first time they had ever had a couple go to boot camp, and they had two of them, so it was kind of neat. Um, and yeah, so that was pretty cool for you know us both to make it to the top twenty. And um, we, I, I honestly was like the one that was least interested in the experience, and but. Like I had said, you know, before we started recording, we've kind of been spinning our wheels for the last 10 years. And so when I found out it was like all all expenses paid, trip to New York, a whole week, I'm like, it sounds like kind of a vacation. So I'm in, I'll definitely go. And then um, Dave really wanted the experience and I was sort of just along for the ride. And as uh, as the week progressed, you know, all the production producers were like why do you want to do this this that and the other thing and I started convincing myself that actually it was a good idea to go on the show so um yeah it was a little bit of a curveball for myself and Dave because Dave really wanted it and so that was a big like huge disappointment um for him which made it a lot harder for me to like go on the show and not feel responsible for taking you know, an opportunity away from him that he really wanted. So yeah, um, that's, that's a little bit of a tough spot for me, I think. It's such an interesting dynamic. Um, it's a dynamic that I obviously cannot speak to. Um, but I remember talking to Brooke and she was, you know, she kind of expressed the same sentiments about what was that season five uh, with her Dave and, you know, how she was given that opportunity to go back and how it kind of made it difficult, I guess. Um, so that's an interesting, an interesting sentiment. And I'm, I'm assuming a, a tough thing to feel. Did that, did that go away at some point when you, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming it would, but was that able to kind of dissipate as you started the experience and, and had lots of other pressing things on your mind? Um, no, it didn't actually. I, I held that pretty strongly throughout the whole experience I think that made it a lot more difficult on myself than I had, uh, I could have if I hadn't have been so hard on myself about like feeling like I needed to perform better because of uh, representing both of us and making sure that I didn't squander the opportunity to go and like almost prove to myself that I was worthy of the experience um and uh yeah that so that was a little bit of a wrench in sort of my good vibes out there um now he was supportive of me and like when I got home I mean the first conversation I had with him on the phone was just him in absolute tears and like he just he just missed me so incredibly um but then on in sort of like the layers there is a little bit of that like uh resentment maybe a little bit that I went and he didn't um so that was like that was pretty tough for us but um we worked through it and now like yeah we're as good as or better than ever um but it just it was it was a curveball that you know we had to deal with that I, not everyone not very many people on this show ever have had to deal with. Um, yeah. When you, yeah. when you think about the, and, and I, <laughs> I owe you a huge apology. Uh, you know, my, my whole shtick about the whole, the show is like, Hey, we don't talk a ton about alone. And here we are. We're like, right. 
I, I think that's we okay. just got to the like heart of the whole thing really fast. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's okay. So yeah, there you go. Um, yeah, it's interesting when you think about the amount of people total in the world, uh, whether it be via this show or via misfortune, uh, get to experience what you all get to experience. But then, yeah, on top of that, to have that interrelational um, conflict, really strife, um, whether that be just purely personal feelings or whether it's, you know, kind of a mutual like, man, I wish I could have been the one doing it. Um, it's an interesting mm-hmm. thing. And so we don't have to go too deep into this and we can pivot right the heck off of it if we want to. But I'm just curious as well, um, you know, knowing that and and some people when they come home, it's like a, a real struggle uh, and others, it's not that big of a deal. I don't know what your reintegration was like necessarily, but um, did that, did those feelings kind of impact that as well? Did it kind of, I'm just curious how that was trying to come back and and still harboring those concerns, I guess. Um, During the winter. So I got back like right at Christmas time and um, it was all just like love, love, love and support. Um, But we were jumping right into our busy season. Like we had 11 trips planned. They were double headers back to back to back. And Um, so there wasn't a whole lot of time for me to hibernate, which is exactly what I wanted to do. Um, and Dave did an amazing job of trying to orchestrate our schedule so that I could be, uh, more of a behind the scenes help, like working on the food and doing some gear shuttles and that kind of thing. Um, just to give me as much personal time as I could given the circumstances um and so we didn't actually spend a lot of time together during the winter months um while I was doing most of my recovery because um he was out on expeditions so I mean he had a great winter and whenever he was home he was you know very very supportive of me um and then it wasn't until like the show started airing that then it was sort of like, yeah, he was very, very supportive and very, very proud of me, but he didn't really want to watch the show. Um, so it took a little bit to, and then of course, like I'm getting all of this attention. Um, and before alone, like it was always Dave and I, we did everything together. It was like our accomplishments. It was you know, everything was together. And so this was the first time where like I was getting attention and he wasn't necessarily, and like, not that he is an attention hog or anything, but it was just this like different it's a big change. Yeah. Like different world. And, uh, again, he was like super proud of me, super encouraging, but I think that just sort of reopened the wound of like him not having that experience. Um, but I mean, eventually all wounds heal and we've moved on and really learned like a lot about communication together and being supportive and listening to each other and not judging or getting upset. And that's a huge part of marriage is, you know, getting through those challenges together and um, coming out a better uh, couple afterwards. So um, I was happy to have gone through that challenge um, because now I know like 
yeah, there's not really much that can get in the way of our, our love. So, um, you know, I think it was a good, good test. And it was also like good check for humility for both of us. You know, it was like, Kylan, don't let your head get too big. Dave, like, <laughs> you know, don't be so whatever, like envious um, and like support each other and understand each other. And, and yeah, so it worked out. It's worked out well and we're, we're still above water. So that's good. <laughs> no, I, you know, I really appreciate it. Um, something that I, I, you know, when I started this project, I was obviously intensely curious about the, the human side, right. The, the people of, of the show, like not necessarily, you know, this maybe like a, a voyeuristic wanting to know everything about the behind the scenes of alone. Um, more just curious about the, the people, and the type of people and you know something that I have come to be very passionate about and so I'm grateful that you shared that story is is helping people understand the human side of the alone experience um, because it's so often that the human side of of the experience is completely ignored not not by the show but by those consuming it right the, the human aspect of it is kind of removed and there's all of these human nuances that are a very real part of the experience. They're just the ones that aren't often seen or shared. And mm -hmm. so that's become for some reason, something that's very important to me <laughs> um, yeah. as I've, you know, communicated with, you know, your number 27 and, and, you know, feel like I'm friends with so many of these people now. Um, so thank you for sharing that and, and kind of, and shedding light on, you know, what that experience is like for you both to go through together. So thank you so much. Mm -hmm. yeah. And, you know, we, we kind of jumped in that I, I had that recollection. I was like, Oh shoot, I forgot. And that kind of jumped us in really quick. So I want to take a second um, before we get too deep into our conversation today and just give you a chance to share where people can find you or where they can find Dave and your businesses and, and all the things you're doing together, whether that be, online, social media, YouTube presence, um, and mm -hmm. then we'll jump right back in. Yeah, um, you can find us. Our company is lureofthenorth.com, um, and we're just at Lure of the North on Instagram and Facebook um, and YouTube. So it's pretty pretty easy. It's just Lure of the North, and uh, both, an, both Dave and I like kind of operate that uh, platform and it's a little it's a smorgasbord it's not always just snowshoeing it's the homesteading it's the tree stuff it's the foraging and fishing and inspiration um yeah so that's where you can find us awesome thank you and and i will obviously i'll have links to all the pages to everything in the show notes below so if you're listening um stay on the episode and keep listening to the episode but maybe open up a little browser window and and go check out um, their socials and the websites and see what's going on there. So my, I guess my first question, um, obviously you all live in a place where winter and I mean, seasons really, I guess are a, a huge important part of life. And I'm, my first thing is I'm curious why the, why the focus on winter, uh, when you look at your, your operations and, you know, I mean, maybe it's a naive thought, but I'm sure that winter creates more complications although complications in doing what you do in spring and summer and fall would probably just be different but 
all the all there present. So I'm just curious, why the focus on winter and, and why the decisions to to heavily focus your your touring and that work on that season? It's a really good question because I always knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I knew I wanted to have my own business, but I never for a second thought it was going to be winter camping. Um, it was not not like something I was passionate about when I was a kid. Uh, in fact, quite quite the opposite. I always liked winter. Um, we live in Ontario and Ontario, I swear, has the best seasons in the world. Um, it's just beautiful four month uh, sections and every season is glorious and every season is just long enough that you're ready for that change. And when that change happens, you're just like, oh, this is my favorite season. Every, every change into the season, you're like, this is my favorite season. Um, so, but when Dave and I were in school, um, we, you know, you go from September through April and in Northern Ontario, a lot of that time is winter. Um, you know, it gets cold by October. It stays cold until April. Um, so camping. So we both of us went to university for outdoor adventure leadership. It's a Bachelor of Physical Education, but it specializes in outdoor adventure leadership. And so Dave and I both had an affinity for camping for adventure and the school year, everyone wants to be really social and go on wilderness trips together. Um, but then, of course, winter hits. So you have to be like, well, let's go winter camping. Um, and we started off winter camping, probably like most people do it, is basically summer camping with a heavier sleeping bag, these like aluminum snowshoes, and they're like just bigger than your boot and like you know, you basically just from the moment you step out onto the trail, you're degrading and you're just ready to go back for a hot shower and hot meal. Um, and it's not sustainable to be out there for that long with that style of camping. Um, and when we found this book, so we took this course called Winter Camping and the textbook for that course was A Snowwalker's Companion by Garrett and Alexandra Conover. And they live in Maine, and they had a company called uh, Northwood Northwoods Way. They've retired now, but um, they ran traditional winter trips. And their whole book talks about um, terrain-appropriate technology. And most people in our area are are using mountaineering snow equipment, so lightweight. Uh, tents and like the aluminum snowshoes with the crampons um, not designed for boreal forests in the slightest um, you know up here it's relatively flat and you're traveling on the lakes and the rivers that are m mostly flat um, with a few portages in between and so in that book it talks about terrain appropriate technology getting everything off of your back putting it on a toboggan widening your snowshoes and now your snowshoes make a perfect float for your toboggan to to follow you you're wearing breathable moccasins breathe breathable clothing because it's a cold dry air so you don't have to worry as much about getting wet and um 
you sleep in a canvas tent with a wood stove so you can hang your moccasins to dry at night. You can be in your t-shirt while you're cooking because you're so warm and comfortable. And just how, how much everything worked as a system to make you comfortable and travel efficiently in that location, in that terrain. And it was such a, an aha for both of us. Um, Dave was the first one who, you know, in the back of the book, there are rudimentary patterns to make your own gear. And so Dave made his own pair of moccasins from that book. And we lived in like downtown Sudbury at the time, but we had this back trail that we could go and take our dog off leash um, for like an hour loop. And he came back the first day after wearing his snowshoes, just like this huge smile on his face. He's like jumping up and down. He's like, you got to make yourself a pair of these. Like my feet have never been more comfortable. My feet are dry. Like, like hallelujah. (laughs) Um, And that was sort of this like switch that went off how we need to educate more people. We need to have other people experience this. And so we started making all our own gear, um, you know, going out on personal trips to the point where we decided like we need to test this even more. And we went on a 40 day winter trip, self-sustained, no food drops or anything, just the two of us. and it was incredible, um, like how comfortable we were. It was like the 40 days were up and we were like, we could still, we could stay here. Like, it's so incredible how comfortable we are, even though it's some days like minus 30, minus 40, blowing snow, like pretty cold, bitter temperatures. But that, that reset every night with the heated wood stove you've got all your stuff hanging to dry you're just being civilized you have a good night's sleep um it's a game changer and so we just really felt like people need to know about this and um i mean so much of canada and just north america in general have winters and so many people just hide hide from winter and hibernate and people get sad and um you know, people aren't dressed appropriately for winter. They go from building to car to car to building. And no wonder they hate winter because they're wearing their like little leather jacket with, you know, maybe leather gloves and little, you know. And so it's just a matter of educating people on like, oh no, like winter can actually be, be a blissful time. You just have to have the right gear and clothing. So that's why winter. (laughs) That's cool. Um, yeah, I. It's interesting as you're you know, as you're talking. I'm thinking of, it's kind of the you know, it's like the same um, origin story from someone else I've spoken to on the podcast of like, yeah, we're gonna go camping and it's winter time. I mean, a different version, obviously, but how for some reason it seems like winter camping and winter experiences um, tend to be very powerful for people, and. So that's just, that's interesting to me. And that conversation happened um, with Matt Corradino. Like his, he had this very seminal camping experience in winter where he had like nothing that he needed for winter, right? Um, But how that winter experience like kind of altered the path of his life. Um, Mm -hmm. And then just had a conversation, you know, another one just the other day, um, with Wayne Russell and you know he was talking about how 
winter camping has become like a seminal point to him and and that you know that warmth and the reset i don't know just interesting how it seems like there's something to it so maybe the rest of us should start paying attention to what people are saying about camping in winter time <laughs> well and i honestly think like uh the winter camping and the making your own moccasins and all of your own gear knowing how to repair it is like a philosophy that we were able to take and give us the confidence to move off grid out here and live in the wilderness. Like if you know how to winter camp, you know how to live in the bush. Um, it doesn't get harder than like being comfortable in the winter. So if, if you can, you know, know how to identify firewood and stay warm and stay comfortable in the winter time, then there's, there's no stopping you as to what you, you know, you can't do. And, and that really did our, our love for winter camping, uh, I think fueled our confidence to take that move out into the wilderness. Like we're 10 kilometers from the nearest road. Um, and, or, and we're, we're boat access or snow machine access. And, you know, when we first moved out here, someone would ask us like, Oh, like, like how many winters have you been out? And we said, this will be our first one. And they go, ha, I'll see you in December. We're just like, why? Like, I mean, we winter camped for our profession. Like this is going to be easier than winter camping because we don't have to set up our tent every night. Like the tent's already set up. We lived in a tent for three years. Um, and it was like clamping, you know, like it was, we had a bed, we had uh, a wood shed with wood already seasoned and like in that respect, it was way easier than the camping. So um, yeah, I, I do think like learning how to properly winter camp um, set us on this path of living off grid in the middle of, you know, the wilderness. So that's awesome. Um, I have to, I have to ask the question. I have to back up a little bit here. Did you all meet at school or yeah. what? Okay. So you had separately self-selected into this path and then your paths crossed at school and then here we are today yeah exactly okay, cool yeah did you um what took you to an outdoor i mean what took you to that school i mean where you know, is that mm -hmm. did you grow up that way i mean obviously you did gymnastics and swimming and and mm -hmm. um so it seems like you were probably a very busy child with not a ton of time for you know outdoor excitement but where did that come from? Was that something that your family did? Did it, you just woke up one day and said, you know what I want to do somewhere in between? <laughs> sort of. Um, yeah. So I was training like 35 hours a week. So I didn't have a whole lot of time. I didn't go to summer camp like a lot of kids. And, but my two things, my dad grew up, um, uh, as a farmer, um, farmland so um carrots onions lettuce um so we were packing lettuce uh you know at a very young age um i because i was training so much with gymnastics it, i didn't do a whole lot on the farm but my brother did and um two my so i'm kind of used to like getting dirty by default with that 
Um, but two, my mom grew up in uh, sort of lake country uh, in northern Ontario, and my grandparents lived on a lake, and they built their own house, and um, so that was sort of my camp growing up. Um, we spent a lot of time there, and I think just through osmosis, um, that really became a part of me without actually knowing that that was a part of me because my competitive sports was so in the foreground of my life. Um, the naturey stuff, like I always liked nature. I never was shy to it, um, but never really realized how much it was a part of my life until I was going to university and I was sort of like all my life, I thought I was going to be a physiotherapist because I spent more time in the physio's office than I did with my own parents. Um, and I appreciated the help that they were giving me and other athletes around me. And so I always thought I would travel around with sports teams and, you know, help people get back in the game. Um, but as I was going to school for that, I realized like there was something wrong. My, my grades were not great. Um, despite my efforts, I, you know, went to all of the tutoring classes and, um, I knew those textbooks, you know, through and through, but for some reason, those multiple choice exams were just not jiving with my brain. And I was sort of questioning, like, what was it, what's going on? And I was like, maybe this isn't for me and started jotting down career options that I was thinking about would be cool to have. And I realized that they all were outdoors. And I was like, oh, like this is this is something that I should pay attention to. And so I was like, I should go to school for the outdoors. And so I started like, I don't even think Google was around at the time, but it was like, let's just for lack of better root, I started Googling uh, universities that had outdoor programs you and I asked ended Jeeves on. did you to yeah ask probably <laughs> yeah exactly um and so yeah I I switched schools and started pursuing outdoor adventure and um oh I never looked back like it was in hindsight like it was a really big decision that I made to just jump ship and and change career paths altogether for a career that was much less or much more vague and like yeah. less income stable. Like, I don't even know what I was thinking as like far as what I could be when I grow up kind of thing. But, uh, you know, I was just like, yeah, I mean, there's a school for it. So there must be, gotta be something, something I could do. <laughs> That's awesome. And th I was actually going to ask that question because um, <clears throat> you're hearing you talk about you know gymnastics and I don't know the exact time frames but I'm guessing that between gymnastics and competitive swimming that that kind of delivered you fairly close to your college years and life decision making is that a fair yeah. assumption yeah um, yeah because I wanted to talk about that because that it seems so Michelle she she was a very competitive athlete and she, you know, opted to not continue her competitive athletics into her college life and into that time frame. Um, and so, you know, her life was super busy with, with sports and then school. And then we met and then it's like, wait, 
what now, you know? And so I'm just curious what, what that pivot was like for you to go from competitive sports and then, you know, going to traditionals, a traditional university to go into a very traditional career path to then, you know, making that choice. And I'm just, I feel like there probably would be a lot of internal conflict, um, maybe not with that pivot, but with everything leading up to that point in your life. Uh, what was that like? Uh, it was hard for some, in some ways, because so my goal as a kid was to go to the Olympics. Like that was my dream. That was my goal. That was my life pur purpose. And even in university. So after I had to quit swimming, because I, uh, after my ninth concussion, I, anytime I would um, raise my heart rate in the pool, I would get really, really dizzy. So it was like I was getting seasick. Um, and that was just crippling, like I couldn't race. And um, so when I was a kid, I always admired Silken Lawman, which is a Canadian rower. And so I thought, ah, you can be an athlete later in life when you choose a sport like rowing. So my first year university, when I was going in for kinesiology or, or physiology, um, I went to a university where the national coach was also the varsity coach. So I was like, I'm going to be a rower. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get to the Olympics by rowing. And um I met with the coach and I was like, Al, like, I want to go to the Olympics. How do I get there? And he just looked at me. He was like, you're not. And I was like, what? Like, what? <laughs> and he's like, uh, you're what we call a tweener. Uh, you're too big to be a lightweight and you're too small to be a heavyweight. Um, and there's no middle class. And I was like, well, screw you, I'll show you. And, uh, you know, so I worked my butt off that year. I broke uh, some junior varsity records um, on the ERG. And um, had you rowed before? Or was this like, no. <laughs> I, I wasn't getting the feeling that you were a rower. So that's impressive. No. Yeah. So I was like, I'm going to get there. And so, yeah, worked my butt off. And then something happened. And I was just like, I don't know, like this competitive edge, I'm kind of tired of it. Like I, I'm a little bit over it and I think there's more to life and maybe it was just my age that I was just sort of dwindling in the dedicating my life to the sport. And I was just like, yeah, just seeing a little bit more value in other aspects of life. And um, so when I moved up to Sudbury for the outdoor adventure um, program, I started a varsity rowing team up there and uh, quickly just decided I did it for one year. And I was like, no, like, I think I'm done. And then, you know, started canoeing, hiking, biking, whitewater kayaking, and just loving still the adventure of outdoors, but in a much less competitive way. And, um, that felt really good to me. Uh, I still had this sort of athleticism in the outdoor adventure, but just like it was more for 
uh, community and sort of bonding over the experiences with others. And uh, yeah, I don't know, just became a bit less competitive. Um, so this is where I'm life. I'm wholly unprepared for this conversation because I've I've started to get this fascination. Um, you know, when you see certain individuals that are just like driven, you know, like mission focused, laser mission focused, and nothing takes them off of that path. Like everything in life is focused on that thing. Um, and that is the like the complete polar opposite of me. I think like I'm much more of a hey, what's next, and you know keep Drifter. it yeah, keep it fresh, keep it exciting, dreamer type of a thing, you know. Um, and so I've for some reason over the last little while I've become very fascinated by by that mindset and by that personality. Uh, and so I'm like super excited to be talking to you because I'm like oh my gosh, I found my person right. Uh, but I'm like wholly unprepared to have that conversation because I wasn't thinking we were going to have that conversation. Um, so how, when did you make that goal? Like when did you decide I'm going to be an Olympian and did you think it was going to be gymnastics? I'm assuming because that's, sounds like that's what you were doing and was the, the subsequent pursuit in swimming and then in rowing, um, yeah, I, I guess I'm trying to like understand, did it start out as I'm going to be an Olympic gymnast come heck or high water and then you were trying to hang on to at least part of that? Or was it more from a kid, like I'm going to be an Olympian and we'll just figure out how to get there? That's a good question. Um, I mean, when I was a gymnast, I think in my life, my dad was a big influence on sports mentality um he was a high level hockey player um he was being drafted for the farm team um for the ottawa senators um but he got injured and that um halted his career and i think part of him wanted his kids to finish his legacy and he wanted us to go to you know my brother nhl and me the olympics because that was you know the equivalent and um so he put a lot of pressure on both of us um he was really big into visualization he wrote us books um, that we would read and recite and read and recite on like, I am an Olympian. I see myself on the podium. I, um, you know, execute my routine with precision and effortlessness. And um, I stick the landing and I, uh, you know, see my score. And um, that was a huge part of my life. And my brothers as well. And that was like, I am a people pleaser. And so for me, it was like, my dad will be proud of me when I go to the Olympics. And so that formed my childhood. Hmm. It was like, how can I make my dad proud of me? And 
and I think it masked as my own desires. Um, I truly am like a, a people pleaser. And so seeing them proud of me made me want to do better and like keep going with that. Um, and to top that off, my brother was a little bit of a uh, rule breaker and defiant little bugger sometimes. And so like he would rile my dad up and so they would fight. And then that made me even more submissive, obedient. And like, Hmm. I have to be that child that like does him proud because Matt, my brother is like, failing <laughs> this screw up's never gonna get there so it's all on me <laughs> so it's all on me and like it was a really hard childhood because he would almost pit us against each other when he thought that was supposed to be motivating like he had good intentions of like just trying to light a fire under us i think that caused a lot of friction especially for my brother because i was the one that was doing well i was the one that was being obedient and like listening to my dad's two hour long lectures about visualization and you know um whereas my brother was just like i don't want to hear it anymore and then he would my dad would start yelling like why can't you be more like kylan and of course that's not healthy so my brother was like what the F I'm out of here. And so that made me even more want to be like, Oh, I got to make everyone proud. And yeah. And so that was a huge part of my childhood, just sort of really motivated to go to the Olympics. Uh, And I don't actually know, like you'd have to dive deep into like, get me a therapist to decide whether it was me that wanted to go to the Olympics or was it me that wanted to like, make my dad proud to go to the Olympics. Um, so yeah, we'd have to go into some expensive therapy to figure yeah, that I... one out. <laughs> but yeah. um, it was my goal. That was my thing. And, uh, and I loved the training. I really, I did like the concentration, the uh, purpose, and I genuinely enjoyed the sport. And when I injured myself in gymnastics, I was heartbroken. Um, but it just made sense. I mean, I basically broke my back and bruised several vertebrae and, um, it was just not safe for me to go back. So I thought, Oh, swimming is a really safe sport, you know, like very low impact. And I've, I've got a strong upper body. Um, I'm a natural. And so, jumped right in like I don't I wasn't my back wasn't even healed when I jumped into swimming and immediately went from like beginner to into the junior national club like so there's like you know sections of your of your club and you know they they fast-tracked me into you know the high performance part of the club and training nine times a week and you know, just loving it. I, I really loved swimming. Um, and then, you know, the concussions and, and whatever, and then rowing, like I really liked rowing, but again, I was just sort of like, "Mm, I'm losing the, 
who's in the fight here? <laughs> yeah, that, uh, um, yeah, that's a lot. Was it, was there, how do I put this? Was there a sense of relief at all when the rowing thing, I was going to just say sailed into the sunset and that would have been a dumb thing to say, <laughs> but when, when rowing went its way, was there eventually some relief with that or was it all just like, was it all turmoil? For swimming, I was gutted because I could see myself making it. Um, I was doing really well and just wanted to keep going. And so when I started being really dizzy at practices and I would sit on the pool deck watching my fellow teammates doing a hard practice and they like, touch the wall, look at the clock and look at me and like kill me with their eyes. Cause they wanted to be me up on the pool deck. Cause they were, it was a really tough workout. And I like, I would have given anything to be in their shoes, you know, puking on the sidelines because it was so hard. Like I was gutted um, with the rowing though, by the time I got into rowing and decided it wasn't for me, it was like the right decision. It was like closure. It was like, yeah, time to move on. Um, and then I just became competitive. Like I am a competitive person, but it's always been competitive with myself because I've always been individual sports. Um, so I just use that sort of life, you know, lessons to be competitive with myself in just life in general and try and be the best person that I can be. And um, I think it's served me well. And also like believing that nothing is impossible. And um, if you want it bad enough, you'll find a way. And so um, I think all of my sports upbringing has set me up for success in a lot of other ways. Um, but it also comes with its own baggage. <laughs> Yeah, that uh, thank thank you again for for sharing and and discussing that. It brings up all sorts of questions that, like you said, I don't know um, if I'm qualified to ask them. It's out of curiosity um, because I, I find this stuff to be very very fascinating. I just I don't know. We might get somewhere where I can't get out of. <laughs> um, all right. I, I guess I'll just ask this: Has have those things been? Uh, I, I guess the experiences with all of it, has it come to a place now where it is building towards your good as opposed to something that is a, a challenge or a struggle for you or something that, that was like a, a difficult part of your past? For sure. I'm learning a lot the last couple of years since being back from alone, actually. Um, I'm really learning a lot about um, not being a people pleaser as much and um, doing things for um, my uh, desires and being able to say no to certain things um, at the right times. Like it's not always beneficial to just want to please somebody because actually you're hurting yourself in the long term, And so I'm coming to a balance in my life where um, I definitely want to keep the people around me happy and healthy. Um, but that doesn't 
mean that I just bend over backwards and do whatever and whenever. It just means that I have to set boundaries um, for myself. And if they don't understand that, then they're not really uh, good for my life. And so that might be an opportunity for me to let something go, let someone go out of my life that isn't serving me um, for my own personal benefit. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Um, And it just taught, like you just taught me a lot about life as well. I'm going to share so I'll share a story. You, you're, you were half of the story. So you, you're like, wait, we, how can I be half of a story with you? We just barely started talking. Um, you're half of this story and I, I, I'll share it and we can talk about it because I think what you just said, um, you just taught me a lot. And so, so for everyone out there, I reached out to Kylan the first time, gosh, it's been months. I mean, how long were you all in the Arctic for? Is that like six yeah, weeks? Like, yeah, six weeks. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so Kylan, you know, I had obviously been following you all and you'd been on, I think, was it an Arctic expedition as well? That like crazy. Yeah. Cro- we, it was a, we crossed Ontario from okay. Lake Superior to James Bay. Yeah. Okay. So, um, you know, been following that and how long was that journey? That was a couple months as well. Right. Or was that a yeah, 72 days? Yeah. Um, and like, so it kind of to point in the podcast, like, all right, I think it's time to reach out to Kylan. And then you were on the middle of that journey. And so when that ended, I was like, all right, maybe I'll give him some time and then reach out. And so for an author, I reached out to Kylan right before you went and were caretaking, I think it was on that Arctic camp, uh, which beautiful photos, by the way. Um, Thank you. I think me and my six-year-old are both super jealous that you got to see narwhals. That's cool. Um, <laughs> but anyways, so I reached out to Kylan um, right before, you know, you hadn't announced this Arctic trip, I don't think. And for me, I'm like, oh, man, this is, you know, you're leaving for six weeks. And I was like in a bind. I needed an episode like that week. And so I just just casually was like, Hey, like, you know, do you happen to have time this week? And for you, your response came back of, you know, sorry, it's not going to work. Catch in six weeks. Right. Which I was obviously, you know, I'm at your guys's, uh, mercy here. And so that was totally fine to me. But as you were talking, kind of telling your whole backstory and coming to this place of being able to stand up for yourself, um, that just immediately obviously pinged my mind. Cause like, yeah, like I was, I was being kind of selfish right there. Right. Like in my mind, I needed an episode that week. And while 100% want to, you know, and was wanting to respect where you were at. So when you're like, yeah, this week, it really isn't going to work. I'm not going to push that. Right. And I'm not like offended or sad by it. Um, but you know, for me, like asking the question was, you know, I, could have stopped and thought, huh, let's see, leaving for the Arctic for six weeks, you have a home that's going to need lots of buttoning up and lots of putting together. You're still, you know, unpacking and drying gear from your trans, you know, your trans navigation of Ontario. Um, yeah, anyways, that just taught me a lot of like making sure that, that you're mindful of what you're asking of others and how and when and why you're asking of others. I, I think typically, you know, Michelle and I are very big on being very intentional with how we, how and when and why we ask for people's time and assistance. Um, mm-hmm. But 
anyways, for some reason that story just really hit me and I don't know if it's going to hit anybody else, but, um, I just learned a lot. So thank you for teaching me. I appreciate that. Hmm. Well, thank you for acknowledging that. I think, yeah, it is, uh, it is something that I have started to do a lot more of is like, uh, saying no, um, when it it's, like I really try not to cram my schedule um, because I want to be able to give you my time without my mind being cluttered as well. Like I'll only ever do like one talk a day, like this whole week I've been doing talks and interviews and it's just like max one per day because I, yeah, yeah like it takes me a lot of energy to, to give you uh the best answers and the insights and the clarity and if i've got like if i've got a meeting at you know 8 15 then i'm gonna be like okay like let's wrap it up thanks for your time bye yeah um whereas now i'm just like you know we can talk for as long as the conversation flows for and you know i can have a good night's sleep and be ready for whoever's time uh you know i'm gonna uh spend time with tomorrow and um, yeah, I think it's important to, to do that and everybody should do that. And that's, you know, I turn off all my notifications on my phone, um, and often on my email, I'll have an auto responder. Sometimes my auto responder will just say, Hey, it's summer. I'm not, it's going to take me a while to get back to you. Like, thank you for your time. But like, I'm going to. I'm just, I'm, I'm just out of sort of the office right now. And, um, that just gives me that little bit of grace for myself to acknowledge that, like, you're not that important, not you, but me, I'm not that important. <laughs> I'm not that... either. <laughs> you can say it that way. That's fine. <laughs> we all aren't. Let's be honest. <laughs> you know, I'm not that important that somebody needs my response immediately. You know, and mm. I think a lot of people, especially in like big cities, could really afford to acknowledge that they're really not that important and they could they could value their time more and consider themselves more important to like fostering care for themselves versus beck and calling other people or if they're the person that pings somebody else after hours or whatever, like give that person that respect and just like honor their personal time because so many of us are people pleasers. And if a text comes in and that person hasn't learned to turn their notifications off, they're going to ping back. And then like, it's going to interrupt their bedtime with their kids or, you know, that kind of thing where it's just, it's really important for people to honor themselves and respect themselves enough to turn off notifications on your phone, set hours, you know, um, because you got to quiet the mind and be able to uh, experience the beauty that is the world around you. But if you're firing on, on all cylinders, you're not going to be able to do that. Hmm. I, uh, I love that. I've never, the whole time you've been talking, um, I can't quite get over in a good way. The, um, like I'm not so special that someone needs to hear from me immediately. Like that's an interesting spin on it. 
And maybe that comes from, you know, you've become, you've had some level of celebrity, right? Some level of understanding. I mean, you've been on interviews this whole week, so I immediately feel like humbled and a little bit guilty. <laughs> like, Ugh! thanks for taking time. Um, but yeah, to stop and think, like, I'm not so important that someone like absolutely has to hear from me. And if they do absolutely have to hear from me, they probably have a way to get a hold of me that's like, hey, this is actually an emergency, right? Um, mm-hmm. So like that, my brain, I just, I can't like process through that because there's a lot of um, self-discovery, I think, in coming to a realization like that and a lot of humility in coming to a realization like that. Um which I think is really cool. And I'm sure that you had to just based on what we've talked about with your personality. Um, it, I, I would assume that it was quite difficult, you know, in the last few years to come to that place of being able to say, nah, man, I'm leaving for the Arctic this week. Like, leave me alone. <laughs> if you want to talk to me and you were very kind, by the way, I like, I'm saying it this way. That's not at all. This is not at all how Kylan <laughs> talked to me, by the way. Um, but if that was your self-talk, that would be totally warranted. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> I just find that fascinating. And it, you know, it, for me, like I work in a traditional job, right. I work a traditional, uh, I, and I hate to say that cause what is traditional? I, I, <laughs> what even is traditional? I work in what is currently a commonly accepted as the typical career path type of job. And, yeah. you know, in my current place, it's a little bit different. But in the past, I've, in the recent past, I've worked with people who were like, you know, phone is always on, they're always available, you know, they're emailing at nine o'clock at night and at four o'clock in the morning. And, you know, for me, like I'm not, I'm not that person. Um, I really value my time and I really value my time with my family. And, you know, like even, even doing the podcast, it's like, you know, it's hard for me to say, okay, hun, like you've got the girls for the next two hours. I'm going to go talk to cool people about cool stuff. Uh, and by the way, girls don't make any noise because, you know, like that's really hard for me to do. Uh But there was always this interesting pressure knowing that, you know, I'm either being passed or being like, I'm like, I'm being outclassed, if you will, in the job, in the workplace by my coworkers who were willing to say, yeah, I'm not going to disconnect. I'm going to, you know, put the girls, put the kids down and then take an email. I'm going to do an email while I'm eating dinner. I'm going to shoot another one when I wake up at three in the morning to go to the bathroom, um, you know, and, and the pressure that that put on me. So interesting Um, uh interesting um how that it's just yeah Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah I've always been this way though um even though I say I'm a people pleaser I'm also I've always been a rule breaker when I think it's a bullshit rule excuse my language yeah that that one will stay Um, in that one will stay in (laughs) (laughs) um I've always had a little bit of rebel in me when it came to things not making sense. And and specifically about like when I was a, like in a typical job, um, I never was willing to get taken advantage of. Um, 
and a lot of my jobs as an outdoor educator, which is where I sort of started in the outdoor industry, you, you wake up at, you know, let's just say 7am, you start work at 8am and you don't finish work until 9.30pm because you are uh, an outdoor educator, you're a lunchroom monitor, you're a babysitter, you're a uh, program facilitator, and then you're an evenings program supervisor. And like you, you don't get a break, you're just working from dawn to dusk. And you get paid like, for example, at one point, we worked at this one place where we were getting it, uh, $60 a day and we were working 13 hours and um, you know obviously that was just like not enough and they you know the company was like well look where you're working it's like yeah it's a beautiful location but like this is you know this is not this is not even minimum wage i don't even make enough money to get myself out of here if i wanted to (laughs) exactly yeah you know and so like me and dave like we we fought this and ended up getting everybody a raise and a reduction of hours because the evening programs didn't you didn't need all the staff at the evening program because it was literally like a game of capture the flag where it was like you just basically need somebody to say and go you know, um, and so we had a reduction in hours and an, and a pay raise for everybody. Um, and that is just something that I'm like, I will not be taken advantage of um, because I know what's right. And, um, you know, so I think it was an easy switch for me to be like, yeah, I'm not doing emails at, at 9 p.m. or, or, or whatever, but, um, there is that societal pressure to, like you said, you don't want your fellow employ- uh, co-worker to be like doing a little bit of extra work and then they're the one that gets the raise or, you know, whatever. But I think you just have to have confidence in yourself in the job that you do and stick up for yourself and say, you can't expect that from me. You know, it's like you, you know, as much as you would like to, squeeze every penny from me and like you can't do that and I'm a good worker and this is my track record and like I love my family period (laughs) you know yeah I think we're you know I, I I feel like we're starting to get some tides shifting you know in the world yeah um there was a such a random thing to talk about there was a a a Super Bowl commercial I think it was I I haven't watched football in years but there was a like a super bowl commercial i'm pretty sure is what it was and it was for chevy trucks like go america right so it's the super bowl it's a chevy truck and it was basically like ragging on like what they perceived as like european work ethic of like you know working shorter hours or getting out earlier and and disconnecting and you know and like america is great because we like we have a oh, tough work ethic, you know, I remember watching that commercial. It was like years ago. I, sh- I should go find it and share it to the Facebook page so people could see it. Um, remember just thinking like, this is so backwards. Like this, <laughs> like this mm-hmm. thing that we're proud of is literally like is terrible. Destroying us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know? And, and I had around the time that I had seen that, 
I had a friend from Romania and I've shared this story before, but I, I had a friend from Romania who they were like, yeah, we got to get out of the States. Like we have to get back to Europe, get back to Romania because they missed that, you know, every night at like five or six, the whole city would shut down and like shops were closed, you know, maybe you had street vendors and stuff, but um, for the most part, everything just shut down in their, in their town. And everyone was in the town square at night and it was like a big party and hangout and community connection, you know, every single night. Um, and so I, it, you know, I think all of those things together just kind of like hit me like, yeah, this is so wrong and so backwards. And I sense that we're getting better as people. I, I think we're starting to understand more of, of human needs. Um, uh-huh. hopefully so. I think so. I think there's a shift. Um, I think our generation now that we're becoming the majority in the workforce aren't uh, buying into the whole work yourself into the grave. Yeah. I think people are realizing there's more to life, um, you know, because life, life is short. I always say life is short, but life is long. And, you know, if life can be long, if your day to day is exciting, yeah. if your day to day is mundane and you just like turn your brain off and go through the motions, then before you know it, 10 years will have gone by. But if you, if you take that time and try and every day have something memorable, like even if it's just like going down and watching the beautiful sunset or like watching the frogs hop around, like something that is like memorable for that day, each day can have a better imprint on your overall life and you'll feel like more fulfilled. And in turn, your life is going to feel like really long. Like I'm 36 and I feel like I've already lived, you know, three or four different lives. And so if I can double my age and live to 72, but continue having enriching experiences, I mean, that's like, you can't ask for more, um, you know, and hopefully I can live beyond 72. But if you get into the run of the mill life, then it's just going to fly by and you're going to wonder what you did. Hmm. Yeah. You know, I, uh, <clears throat> that's so true. So I was in a, a employment situation that was, uh, not enjoyable for me. And, you know, you just kind of truck along and, and, and get it done because you've got people depending on you and, and all of that. Right. And, uh, I left that situation and it was the weirdest thing because it had been two and a half years. And like, I remember I, I was very unhealthy, like very mentally unhealthy when I came out of that. And I didn't realize how bad it was until it ended. Right. And then once it ended, it was like this huge decompression that like made everything even worse. But I like, I remember I went out to the garage and I had, like tools and equipment that I had purchased for a project like two and a half years earlier and I hadn't used them yet. And uh-huh. it like, it just like hit me. And this is all like in the last six months, right? This is very recent last f- three months. Uh-huh. It just like hit me. I was like, Holy cow. I bought these tools like two years ago, two and a half years uh-huh. ago, right at the start of this like <laughs> interesting adventure. And the time went so fast yet nothing really important. Like a lot of very important things didn't get done because of the, the like wheel I was trying to run on, you know? 
So mm-hmm. yeah, that's very true. What you just said, I'll vouch for that. Very real. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. very real. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, <coughs> sorry, recovering from COVID and it is still, uh, so there's that cough there. Um, so I'm curious as you know, you guys live pretty, pretty far out there. It seems like you're pretty far away from neighbors and, and all of that. Do you, are you someone who likes a connection to community and likes a connection to those types of things? Or are you fine just being out or do you feel like it, are there are times you need to crawl back in to, to feel like a human being again? That's a good question because I kind of flip flop a little bit as to where I stand on that. Um, it's like grass is always greener sometimes when mm. you think about it. Like I am so happy out here. I love the scenery. I love my home. I love my surroundings. Um, I love the solitude, the peacefulness. Um, and then there's moments where I'm like, I am really lonely. Like this is, I miss, you know, when I lived in Sudbury, I would go to Zumba. I love dancing so much. Uh, I would go to Zumba four days a week with crazy Carla. Like she is amazing. And it would be a group of 50 middle-aged, semi, like overweight women, like turn in a school gym and we'd turn the lights down and there'd be disco balls, you know, swinging. And it was a blast. And I just loved it. I loved that feeling of just dancing like no one's watching in a room full of women that just want to move you know and there were a few men in there too but it was primarily women um and then I would like bike around town to get groceries and I you know I worked at a bar and so you'd always meet the regulars there and you know like there is that sort of camaraderie with the staff and um so part of me misses that interaction, but then uh, I noticed like living out here and then I'll like go and socialize for a few hours at like someone's house or whatever. And I'll be like, I can't wait to go home. Or like, I'll get home and be like, oh, thank God. Like, <laughs> thank God that's over. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there are parts, there are times where I'm like, oh, like I kind of miss the socializing of living in a town. However, that being said, the town of Espanola is a really small town and going for town runs, like the locals all know you. So you go into each shop and you have a conversation and, you know, so you do get that socialization um, each town run that you go into. And most people in town follow us on social media. So like you'll go in and they'll be like, oh, your boat motor is broken again. eh?" And like, (laughs) you know, so they they know you by proxy because they follow you. And um, so it's kind of fun in that respect. Um, And then, of course, like I talk on the phone with my mom and my best friend. And so I do get that connection versus being on alone where you're like really are alone alone alone. alone. um it's certainly a whole nother level Uh, and of course i've got my animals here which are like uh my soul is just like full every day when i'm with them they're like my angels so um you know i 
if, if, if I was on a loan and I had my animals, like I would be okay. I mean, of course I'd want my husband too, but like, you know, if there was no people allowed, yeah. but you could, you could bring a pet then like, I feel like I would, would be all right. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, I wanted to ask you and then we'll, we'll get you onto your evening here. But so with that said about, you know, town runs and just the hanging out with friends and, and how it kind of gets overwhelming. What was New York city like for you? Was that like, Oh, this is cool. And then like, get me the heck out of here. Like, did you, did you last yeah. very long before you were freaking out? Well, anytime I go into, yeah, like a city big airport and I, I'm definitely like, I go into this meditative state where I'm just like, just, just you can do this just like just breathe, breathe yeah um and it really makes me appreciate coming home that's for sure um in when for boot camp when we fly into new york you go from the airport into a shuttle van and you're taken to like the outskirts right away like we didn't yeah. we weren't in uh we weren't in we were we landed in manhattan but then i think it was manhattan and then we just drove into the country. Um, so we were, you know, kind of rural um, New York and we stayed at like a, a hotel for the whole week. So it wasn't too bad. Gotcha. Well, Kylan, thank you so much. Um, this has been an absolute pleasure. I have learned a lot. Um, I, I think that's like the thing about every episode that I just love is that, you know, and I hope the listeners feel the same way is that there's always something or multiple somethings where you really should stop and, and pause and just listen and, and ponder over what you've just heard. And I, I think we certainly had quite a bit of that tonight. So thank you so much for being so open and, and sharing really your story and, and who you are, I, I guess a little bit about who you are, right? And a little bit about your story. Um, as we're kind of closing, is there anything that you would like to share or talk about or discuss um, that we haven't gotten to tonight is there anything out there There doesn't have to be but if there is i want to give you a chance to to go there Hmm. i don't think so i mean there's obviously so much like we we went off on a tangent for sure but that was you know that's just organic so hopefully that was something that you were expecting or maybe you weren't that's all all. i tell this to people all the time like this show is literally just one big tangent like we just kind of yeah. you know because there's no for those listening there's no preparation there's no like i don't have a list of questions we like to fire through i i kind of started that way and then i felt that things were just more first of all it was easier for me and, and more enjoyable and i think conducive to better conversation to just see where the wind took us and so yeah that's it just turns into a big tangent that's the whole <laughs> that's all this show is <laughs> yep exactly yeah no i mean it was fun thank you for having me Awesome. Well, again, thank you so much. And I, I really appreciate the time that we were able to spend tonight and hope that things go well and that you get to have a relaxing summer and gear up for a successful and safe season. So, Great. Thank you so much. Yeah, it was great to meet you and I will look forward to hearing more podcasts.